Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Do you think there's anything at all that all people in the United States have in common? Self-determinism. Every American I've met always wants to do things their way. Do you feel any allegiance to where you live? Well, I'm a native New Yorker. It's just, you know, one of the most vibrant cities in the world. And my connection is definitely with New York more than it is with the rest of the country. And why do you think that is? We just do things so differently here. I feel like there was kind of always an ingrained division, but especially after Trump got elected in 2016, I feel like a lot of these ideologies that people harbored kind of just surfaced and then people started realizing how different we all are like politically and socially. The division is very unhealthy and is sometimes even tempting to want to split up our country. You know, like let's division off Texas and let them do their thing because we're just not speaking a similar language at all. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright, and welcome to the show. I want to share a conversation I had this time last year with journalist Richard Kreitner. Richard published a book during the peak of the 2020 election madness called Break It Up, Secession, Division, and the Secret History of America's Imperfect Union. The book is a tour through our national history with trying to get away from each other. Richard argues that the storied divisiveness of today is nothing new. If anything, it's the norm. And he raises the provocative question of whether it's time to really ask, you know, can there ever be such a thing as the United States? With the 2022 election behind us, mostly, I guess, and with Donald Trump having already kicked off the 2024 election, this conversation felt worth another listen. So, Richard, thanks for joining us. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. Big fan of the show. I, I guess where I'd like to start is Walt Whitman, um, who you you talk about uh, an essay he wrote in 1871 called Democratic Vistas. And it's this exploration of a post-Civil War America with its, you know, expansive and unified horizon of states. And he was concerned about the fate of such an expansive union. He wrote, quote, The United States are destined to either surmount the gorgeous history of feudalism or else prove the most tremendous failure of time. And Richard, I gather from this survey of our history that you are not quite sure we ever surmounted the gorgeous history of feudalism. Is that a fair, a fair analysis of where you're coming from? I think it certainly is a fair analysis. You know, anybody who's reading the the daily papers, I think, is seeing signs of of that all over the place. You know, concentrated power of all kinds, um, and our failure to really achieve our, you know, what Whitman held to be our democratic destiny. Whitman is kind of like the presiding spirit of the book because I think he's our sharpest observer of American politics and American life from the period before the Civil War to the period after, really the the you know what I, I would consider the hinge point of American history, and he he I think like. You know, Lincoln, who he wrote about so much, they they both had this idea that the Civil War was kind of a bet. It was a wager. It was worth all this sacrifice and all this blood, which Whitman was, you know, intimately familiar with, in order to keep the Union together if it was going to serve some end, if it was going to become some special thing down the road. Um, and you know, part of part of my project kind of came from the realization 150 years later 
you know, we haven't really achieved that that destiny, that the, the wager hasn't necessarily paid off. And what mm. does that mean for our understanding of American history and, and of the future? You wrote this book during the Trump era, right? I mean, was was that part of it? What fueled you? Well, it you? was. It was. I mean, I think a lot of people, you know, kind of mistakenly think that it came out of the Trump era, which it didn't. It actually came out of this kind of late Obama moment of massive frustration about the fact that the Democrats had control of the government. We bothered to elect, you know, our, our first black president and, and you know, a truly inspiring leader and didn't have too much to show for it. Um, I started kind of digging through American history to try to figure out why that was and, and what that meant about the Constitution and the Union and, and, and you know, the, the future. Trump certainly accelerated, I think, the thought for a lot of people that maybe this union isn't all it's cracked up to be. Um, you know, once once Biden was elected, I think a lot of people on the left especially, have kind of um, edged away from that. But but when we see, once again, we're in this moment very much like 2014, 2015, where we see that even Democratic control of Congress, of the presidency, isn't really enough to, to get what you want in a country with a Senate, you know, so, so unequally distributed for population, gerrymandering, um, and the like. You know, I think people are getting frustrated once again. So this, this secessionist sentiment, even on the left, I think, predates the Trump era and, and will return you know, even after he's gone. And you're arguing that that it way predates the Trump era, right? I mean, that, that these ideas, this tension over whether or not this union is viable um, and worth it, that this is a through line all the way through the history of our politics, right? I mean, it's almost like a survey. The book is almost like a survey of, to me, you know, familiar American history, but redefined to show this through line. Right. I, I see it as kind of like an X-ray of American history, where everything that's black is white and everything that's white is black. You know, instead of the story of the coming to be of the nation and, and the constant act of, of creation itself as, as the union continues to exist, there's this kind of ever-present possibility that it might fall apart. Or even before, you know, the, the book starts 150 years before the creation of the United States um, and shows how long it took for a union to be formed and why so many people were against it in the first place. You know, I start the book in a very conventional way. You know, as you say, it's kind of familiar landmarks of American history, just seen in a different way. The pilgrims were not called pilgrims at the time. They were called separatists of all things, because they wanted to separate from the Church of England. And that's why they came to the New World, because they wanted to basically declare independence from the existing structure um, of the Church of England. And then once they continue to, you know, spread throughout America, each settlement, each colony pretty much is is an act of secession from pre-existing ones by people who didn't fit in or, or didn't see themselves as part of whatever pre-existing community, Boston, um, for instance, that, that already existed. So the, the impulse towards separation as the solution for any intractable political dispute is, you know, four centuries old, long predates the, the creation of the United States, and indeed is the reason why it took so long, 150 years, the time it's been since the Civil War, um, to form a union in the first place. Because, you know, as today, the, the one thing that the American colonists had in common with one another is that they wanted nothing to do with each other. <laughs> <laughs> right? To the degree we're unified, we're unified in separation. Well, that's what we see in, the, in like a recent poll that was put out, you know, that a lot of people kind of were alarmed by that, that something like 52% of Trump supporters support secession and 42% of Biden supporters support secession. You know, that's the only thing we really have in common is the wish to have nothing to do with one another. Um, and in the colonial period, you know, and through the revolution, I think disunion is kind of the rule. Um, and any proposal to depart from that by creating some kind of federation is really the exception. Um, and, you know, one most people 
really want nothing to do with. So let's let's go through it. Let's go through some of the big moments in history where this through line of secessionism is is present. So Reconstruction has been a a real touch point for this show and our understanding of modern American politics. So I want to start there. Um, and it's often been called the second founding of the country. And I've often said it's really the beginning of today's idea of America as this land of equal opportunity. You kind of say it's none of that. It's it's really a continuation of the existing divides that the Civil War settled nothing whatsoever. And one point I learned in your book is that in the years right after the war, as politicians in both the North and South fought over the policies of Reconstruction, they were constantly blaming each other for being divisive, for driving us back towards a collapse of the Union. Explain those those charges and countercharges of that moment. Sure. I mean, at the end of Reconstruction, you know, by 1877, the, the so-called Compromise of 1877, really really a surrender by the North to the South, um, you know, you, you kind of have this um, return to the, to the compromise tradition that had always defined American political history quite tenuously, never entirely successfully. But there would always be these great dramas and stress points. And then some kind of deal would be hammered out that would, you know, purport to solve the issues that were at stake, but really just create, you know, further kind of problems that would have to be solved down the road. Um, so the reunion, I, I call it a fraudulent reunion, because it's, it's if you think about the union as a marriage, it's it's the parties getting back together um, on, on horribly unequal terms and without having really settled the core issues about equality that had motivated the dispute in the first place. But I'm interested in the political rhetoric even at that time, like right. as this, this this uh, fake marriage came back together. I guess there's something about the detail of it when I'm reading it that hit home today, again, where you hear both Northern Republicans and Southern Democrats accusing the other of being the person who's driving us towards divisiveness and out of union. Right, right. Well, that was also a continuation of, of rhetoric that had existed before the war, where each side would accuse the other of, of being a disunionist. And and it's kind of like today, where, you know, after each side loses an election, people start to say, yeah, maybe this union isn't really working for us. But then when they win, and the other side starts talking that way, they call them traitors. You know, everybody's kind of both intrigued by and and afraid of this kind of impulse toward disunion. You know, after the Civil War, I mean, one thing that that I think about about this country is is that we're kind of ashamed of having fought the war. You know, we were always taught to be embarrassed by it, that it was caused by these reckless abolitionists who didn't have anybody's interest but their own at heart. You know, we, we you know, I guess, in, I mean, in the North, have always been taught to kind of be somewhat ashamed of having fallen into this, you know, regrettable, tragic dispute, rather than being proud that we fought a war that ultimately led to the, the freedom for four million people, you know, from bondage. Yeah. And part of that shame about the war was not wanting to risk another one, of course. Yeah. And And, you know, powerful, I think this is kind of what you're getting at, like powerful economic interests in the years after the war were able to use that fear of another conflict to stifle any kind of discontent, even if even if it had nothing to do with the causes that led the Confederacy to secede and, and led to the Civil War. I'm talking with Richard Kreitner about his book, Break It Up, Secession, Division, and the Secret History of America's Imperfect Union. Coming up, the Confederates are not the only people who threatened to walk away from these nominally United States. They weren't even the first to do it over slavery. That's next.
Hey, it's Kusha from the Notes from America team, and I want to share a special series from our friends over at the podcast Death, Sex, and Money. You know, it's almost cliche to say that for families, the holidays can be a hard time. Fights about politics, multiple generations under one roof, stress about money, sadness about people who are no longer here. Death, Sex, and Money has been hearing stories from people experiencing estrangement and finding that the holidays are sometimes a central part of that experience. I've been struggling to be estranged from my mom since Christmas. After a particularly distressing holiday episode. Thanksgiving, she's getting angrier and angrier basically because I said that I needed a break. My dad texted at the last minute when we were going to come down on on Christmas Eve day and said, you know what, it it turns out your coming down doesn't work for us. We would have family gatherings and it was the weirdest thing. It was just play acting, but some people were pretending that others were ghosts. Death, Sex, and Money's Exploration of Estrangement is available now wherever you listen to podcasts. And if something you hear resonates with you, please do be in touch with us. We'll dig into this topic soon on Notes from America. You can email us or send us a voice memo. Our address is notes at wnyc.org. All right. Thanks. Talk to you soon. Unity. 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 Unity of America. America. Unity. 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 Our national unity. Unity. And in love. Drums to the unity of America. Welcome back. I'm Kai Wright. This is Notes from America. We're talking this week about the myth of our national unity, which feels pretty relevant at this moment. Journalist Richard Kreitner published a book back in 2020 called Break It Up. And it's a history of the long debate over whether the united part of these United States is worth the effort. He walks through a bunch of secessionist moments and movements in our history, including one in the North before the Civil War. So we we think about the Southerners as the secessionists, um, but, you know, as you rightly point out, before the war also, the end of the Union was a particularly Northern idea, particularly in the 1850s. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we think that it was inevitable that if anybody was going to secede, it was going to be the South. But for the whole decade before the war broke out, it was really the North that had much more reason to be angry with the way the country was going. You had the fugitive slave law, which made it every person's responsibility to to recapture runaways from bondage and return them to their, their purported owners, um, which many in the North um, considered to be just an appalling infringement, not only of of the rights of the accused runaways, but of the state rights of the North. You know, states' rights in this period was really a Northern doctrine. And the Republican Party, which, you know, during the war came to represent federal power, was really a states' rights party actually from the very first. Um, And then, of course, the Dred Scott decision, which many Northerners and even Northern legislatures said this is null and void. This has absolutely no effect on us whatsoever. The Supreme Court is an illegitimate body, and we're under no responsibility to respect this opinion. I think there's good reason to think that if Abraham Lincoln had lost the 1860 election or if nobody had won a majority and the election was thrown into the House of Representatives um, and and the election was stolen from him, basically, I think there's some reason to think that there would have been a, a northern uh, secession movement in 1860, 1861. <laughs> 
And, you know, possibly even a war and possibly the North would have won that war and you would have had a Northern Confederacy mm-hmm. in the 19th century. No, nobody really knows, but there's there's these little hinge points in history that show that that things like this could have gone very differently um, in ways that we don't really appreciate. And so when people, you know, sometimes people read my book and say, ah, we were divided before um, we survived, therefore we have nothing really to worry about now. The lesson to me is is almost exactly the opposite, which is that the union was never destined to be created in the first place. Um, it was never inevitable that it was going to survive, and there were many points at which it very nearly did not. Um, I think that's you know largely the case going forward uh, today as well. The Union divide has also not all only been North and South. You, you write that at least part of the political will behind building the railroads across the continent was an effort to keep the Western states feeling connected to the Union. Explain that history. Sure, yeah. This was a fascinating thing that I really wasn't aware of um, before I started working on the book. But I was excited by it because in 2016, you know, when I really started accelerating my work on the project, uh, CalExit was, you know, in the news. Californians talking about independence today. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I've, I've quickly realized that there's this long history to the idea of a separate Pacific Republic, which would be California, Oregon, maybe Washington State. Um, and that pre-exists California's entry into the Union. You know, when people settled over there, it was really, really far away. There was no railroad. They had to go through this very circuitous route around South America usually to get there. Um, And, you know, they really wanted nothing to do with the United States. They saw it as a country that was fatally divided, that was probably going to fall into some kind of civil war, and they didn't want to be involved. Um, And what's most interesting is that there were very prominent American politicians who were perfectly fine with that, with there being a separate Pacific Republic in California and in Oregon. Thomas Jefferson said, you know, let them be allies, but let them be separate. Uh, Mm -hmm. Daniel Webster even, you know, one union indivisible, um, he he was in favor of of a separate Pacific Republic, um, and this idea that you know that they took their inspiration from the American Revolution that um, we shouldn't be ruled by such a distant uh, government that really doesn't represent our interests. Um, and that idea is picked up especially in 1861 and amid the secession crisis where they say this country is absolutely falling apart. We come from both the North and the South. This is, you know, West Coast residents speaking. Um, And we don't want to have to go to war and and fight against our neighbors and our family and our friends. Um, So let's separate and and form a separate republic. And major politicians from from both of those states, uh, California and Oregon, supported that idea. And if you know, again, if if one or two things had gone differently, or if one or two different you know people had had acted differently, it could have happened that we would have you know an independent <laughs> California today. Well, and so you write that one of the big political motivators for the massive infrastructure project of cross country railroads was that they could keep the West tied to the Union. But then that's ironic because the railroad industry itself becomes a hotbed for a whole new kind of disunion fight around class. And it kind of echoes out into our politics throughout the Gilded Age of the late 19th century, in which elites start talking about labor agitators as kind of secessionists. Right. Well, there's a long tradition in which kind of boosterish rhetoric about national unity covers up for very partisan, sectional, and selfish interests. You know, I think that's something that you can see in the founding generation as well, where they're forming, yes, a more perfect union, but when you start to think and ask, more perfect for who, it turns out to be for a very specific class of speculators and slaveholders. And, you know, um, the, the rhetoric of unity is often used to cover up for kind of selfish interests. And I think that's the case after the Civil War as well. There's a lot of rhetoric about, may, may we unite the country in a way that will it'll never be broken, blah, blah, blah. But all of the all of the profits, all of the gains from this massive 
integration of the country is going to, you know, the very top 1%, as we would say today. And people start to have a problem with that. You know, in 1877, there's this massive wave of labor strikes that, yes, target the railroads um, first, but they have support um, throughout the country and throughout the communities that that they're working in. Um, People are talking about insurrection, talking about a new civil war that will be not between North and South, but, you know, either within the North or, or the whole country, that's really the bottom versus the top. And each side is accusing the other of being the secessionists. You know, mm-hmm. um, the anarchists, the, the labor organizers are accusing the rich of, of seceding from the country, which is, I think, you know, rhetoric that we've heard in the last couple of years as well about the, the super rich basically seceding right. and, and trying to leave the rest of society to solve its own problems. Going and to the, the moon, literally. Right, exactly. Or, or, or you know, seasteading, you know, building islands in the ocean so that they don't have to be part of this, you know, sinking ship, basically. Um, and at the, t- you know, and and the rich are also accusing the underclass, the the agitators, of being, you know, the heirs to the secessionists of 1861, trying to overthrow the government, trying to destroy the republic, basically. Theodore Roosevelt, you know, later on in in a different wave of strikes in the 1890s, suggests taking some of the populists and and shooting them. And dead. You know, it's an incredibly violent rhetoric. And all these people lived through the Civil War. You know, even if some of them were very young, many of them were actually veterans of the, of the fighting. And they're they're seeing their politics through the prism of that experience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they're, you know, in, in cities, in, in, in Brooklyn, everywhere in the country, they're building these massive armories in the middle of cities um, for, you know, National Guard units, state militia units that they think might have to fight against, you know, this kind of rising underclass of, of poor people and of laborers in the same way that the Union Army had to fight these, you know, Southern rebels in the 1860s. And they see it as kind of a, a continuation of that struggle to keep the country together. That's so interesting. You know, when you when you go down Atlantic Avenue and I see this big, this big armory, that, that part of the moment was that they literally were arming up to save the Union. Right. And it's, it's an extremely sad irony, I think, that the memory of the Civil War, one version, the popular version of the memory of the Civil War is basically weaponized for the next, like, century or like till today um, in an effort to prevent, you know, the the promises that were made in the Civil War of equal rights and and of, you know, true justice for all from actually coming true. Um, I think that's part of our need to kind of take another look in American history as part of what 1619 is doing, is is undoing these this false form of memory of our history, because that's that's a prerequisite for, you know, <laughs> having a, a truly united and better country today. It's interesting also that how some of the class disunion that you describe, at least in the West, got resolved, sort of the way that uh, the tension between this popular uprisings um, and the moneyed class gets resolved is, is, is in part through racism. Sure. Yeah. Well, that's a specifically California story. It's kind of a, a weird coda to the story of California separatism, which is that, you know, by 1879, Chinese workers are making up a very large percentage of, of the employment in California. And white people, especially new white immigrants, are really furious about this. So they form a separate party, the Working Men's Party, to basically try to exclude the Chinese from any part of California's political life, prevent them from voting, prevent them from serving on juries, or even prevent them from moving to to California in the first place or entering the United States through California's ports. This would violate a, a treaty that the U.S. and China had signed in the 1860s and therefore trigger a clash between California and the federal government, one that a lot of these people or, the, or their fathers had wanted 
instituted in the first place in the 1840s and 1850s. Um, so there's a state constitutional convention in California that year in 1879, and some people support you know, uh, creating this clash from the federal government and perhaps even seceding from the union if that's the only way that they can institute this immigration ban that they want to pass against Chinese immigrants. Um, and a lot, you know, other people hold them back and, and that doesn't go forward. But I think there's good reason to believe that that is what um, is the impetus behind the federal government's Chinese Exclusion Act of 1883, only a few years later, which is yet another attempt to satisfy California and prevent it from kind of spinning out of the American orbit. And I think that's kind of an interesting example of a much larger theme I try to show throughout the book, which is that secession threats actually do tend to succeed. Mm. You, don't actually, you don't actually have to go through with the act of breaking away from the union in order to get what you want. And I think we see something similar today um, where Republicans will say, oh my God, we're going to go crazy. Even Ted Cruz recently will secede from the union possibly, or I'll support it then if the Democrats abolish the filibuster, admit DC as a state, you know, fair, in my mind, fairly necessary and, and not particularly radical measures. But threats like that is pretty much what, you know, prevents Biden from actually supporting court packing, for instance. If you threaten that you're going to up you know, upend the entire constitutional order, if something happens, it, it makes people pause. Um, and I think, you know, the, the Chinese Exclusion Act is kind of an example of that. And over and over and over again, we see this pattern where Black people and non-white immigrants are kind of thrown under the bus of unity, or more accurately, sacrificed to maintain the myth of a truly United States. It's, you know, it's fear of disunion that prevents FDR, for instance, from really including black people in the New Deal or um, supporting an anti-lynching law. You know, it's, it's, he says this explicitly, and so does Eleanor, who, who supported the legislation. You know, it's the fear of angering the South too much and, and undermining national unity that prevents us from having a truly inclusive New Deal. And that's, that just defines American politics, you know, right up to the, to the 1960s, really, yeah. is this fear of, of, turning the South against the Union once again and undermining national unity. So, so this, this compromise tradition that returns is basically, you know, it comes at a cost, and that, that cost is, is usually borne by, by people of color. I want to talk about the presidential election of 1896 because it seems like this is a moment where a lot of this stuff we're talking about crystallizes and sort of shapes our modern politics over unity and disunity for the 20th century. So the populist movement, just to set the stage here, had erupted, as we've discussed. Class unrest is everywhere. And they're going into the 1896 election. And they hold a national convention in Chicago, where the famous populist, William Jennings Bryant, is supposed to be nominated. But he's challenged by a Southerner, Pitchfork Ben Tillman. So introduce us to Tillman and explain the speech he gives at that convention. Sure. I mean, this is actually the Democratic Party. This is the Democratic Party's attempt to kind of co-opt the populist movement uh, and basically defang it. Um, so Tillman, he's a veteran of redemption, which is the struggle after the Civil War during Reconstruction to overthrow Reconstruction, to overthrow the, this multiracial democracy that that the Republicans in Congress have basically set up in the former Confederacy. And they use that, you know, they do that through violence, through attacks, through murders, lynchings, um, and, and massive, massive voter suppression. And Tillman is very proud of this, very open about his, his role in it. Um, and he basically represents the return of a kind of blatantly 
racist confederate you know mindset to, to american politics mixed with this this populist uh, movement of of free silver and um economic redistribution um so he he's the first at this chicago convention that's you know more famous for william jennings bryan's uh famous speech about the cross of gold um at the same convention ben tillman makes a speech saying that you know that civil war was fought for you know to 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 free black people this is going to free white people. And he basically threatens secession for the first time on, on the uh, national political stage since the Civil War. And he's booed and he's hissed off stage by, by Brian's people who don't want their movement to be seen as this separatist regional thing. It's, mm -hmm. it's a national movement. Um, but the Republicans use that Tillman speech against the Democrats in that election to paint any, you know, to paint their kind of economic populist ideas as irredeemably not not so much racist. That's not really their concern, but disunionist, you know, a threat to the established order. I mean, it sounds like they more than just use it, right? Like that they believed that that was true, that they were they were terrified by this speech. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think they're frankly more afraid of people like Eugene Debs than Ben Tillman, you know, who's more interested in in his racism, I think, than than his actual economic populism. But but it kind of sets the stage. And this is, you know, the other reason why this is an important election. It's the first election where big business really gets involved and basically buys the election for McKinley. Um, and the Republican Party has kind of given up by this point on any semblance that they care about the outcome of the Civil War, really. You know, any any semblance that they care about black political rights in the South. For the first time, they, they remove uh, a plank in, in the Republican Party's platform that supports the protection of voting rights for, for black people in the South. And, and so this is the beginning of a kind of reconciliationist American politics. Let's forget about all that divisiveness. Let's focus on America, you know, getting rich, <laughs> um, you know, starting our own empire um, at the same time. Um, and I think that sets the pattern for American politics for many years to come, which is that any critique of the established economic order, especially, is going to be painted as a, a kind of quasi-secessionist impulse that can be rightfully excluded from American politics. The Constitution doesn't really apply, certainly not, um, you know, freedom of speech doesn't really apply to people who are going to threaten our order in the way that the Confederates did. And I mean, just to put a fine point on that, I mean, it's, so this is really the moment where there becomes this uh, liberal conservative consensus that bottom-up politics, um, this kind of populist bottom-up agitation is coded as disunionism. That's right. That's right. And that continue, you know, you see that again in the 1950s, you know, after World War II, if you ask anybody in the street, well, when was, you know, of course the Trump question is when was America great? But another question is when was America ever united? Maybe you'll get people saying the late 1940s, early 1950s. But that's also a moment, the Red Scare, where you're having an entire universe of political ideas excluded from the political conversation and painted as inherently treasonous. So, you know, how, how united were we really? I'm talking with journalist Richard Kreitner about his book published in 2020 called Break It Up, Secession, Division, and the Secret History of America's Imperfect Union. After a break, we're going to jump ahead into the civil rights era and the modern secessionist ideas that Richard argues became the foundation of today's Republican Party. We're not taking your calls this week, but of course, you can always leave us a voice note right on our website at notesfromamerica.org. Stay with us.
WNYC Studios is supported by Wondery's new podcast, Black History for Real, introducing you to the most overlooked black history makers you should already know about. Historical tea is the hottest and it pours the best. Hosted by Francesca Ramsey and Conscious Lee. Follow Black History for Real on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen everywhere on 2.5 or you can listen early and ad-free on Wondery Plus starting 129. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. There's a lot going on right now. Mounting economic inequality, threats to democracy, environmental disaster, the sour stench of chaos in the air. I'm Brooke Gladstone, host of WNYC's On the Media. Want to understand the reasons and the meanings of the narratives that led us here? And maybe how to head them off at the pass? That's On the Media's specialty. Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts. Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. This week, we are revisiting a conversation I had last fall with journalist Richard Kreitner about his book called Break It Up, which traces the long history of disunity in these nominally United States. Before the break, we'd arrived in the mid-20th century, a time that some people look back upon as an era of unique unity, the post-war pride and the huge push to create a new middle class for white people, at least. But as Richard notes, the Red Scare of that time was in part a reaction to the secessionist movements that immediately preceded that moment, and a new, lasting secessionist ethos was about to erupt. Well, let's do jump ahead in the 20th century, uh, and, and let's actually go to the 60s, because you tell a story that kind of defines modern conservative politics and its relationship to this secessionist ethos, today's Republicans. Uh, and it's 1961. It's the 100-year anniversary of the start of the Civil War. John Kennedy wants to hold a celebration of unity in Charleston, South Carolina, which is, of course, where the first shots of the Civil War were, were fired. But immediately, the fact of this disunion comes up. So how so? Right. Well, the only place that they could find to to host this kind of commemoration of the beginning of the Civil War is a segregated hotel. And, um, you know, the, the New Jersey delegation, I believe it is, which which has black members on their, their commission commemorating the Civil War, is, is told that they're not welcome at that hotel. So the federal government has to find, the, the National Commission has to find some kind of neutral space that's not segregated. So I think they go to a military base nearby. But then South Carolina pulls out of, of that commemoration. They because secede they, from the, from the pro-union celebration. That's exactly right. They secede just as they did a century earlier. And, and um, I think Strom Thurmond gives a speech saying, you know, that this is fantastic. This is exactly what our grandfathers did and we should keep going down this road. That's, of course, coming amid a wave of, of so-called massive resistance to desegregation to Brown v. Board of Education in which Southerners are picking up the ideas of John C. Calhoun and, and the Confederates um, and talking about nullifying federal law, nullifying uh, Supreme, the Supreme Court cases. Um and even talking about, you know, William Faulkner gives a gives an interview in which he says, well, if the North pushes too hard, you know, there's going to be a civil war. Um, so, you know, a century later, nothing has been resolved. 
And, you know, I'm fascinated by a moment a, a year after that messed up Civil War commemoration in which George Wallace is inaugurated as governor of Alabama. And he's, you know, that speech is best known for his uh, support for segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever, But the, and which sounds like it's, it's just about the South. But there's another part in the speech where he's appealing to whites in other parts of the country, in the North and the West, and he's saying— you have grievances too. You have you have racial grievances. Um, you're you're starting to lose your manufacturing jobs. The communists are in control of the universities and whatnot. You are Southerners too, he says. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really the founding statement of modern conservatism and and the modern you know Republican Party, which is that it, it's kind of the the Southernization of um, American politics and the, and really the nationalization of of Confederate grievances and and the lost cause mythology. You know, and that's when you start to see Confederate battle flags flying far north of the Mason-Dixon where nobody has, has you know, Confederate heritage, yeah. but they see the stars and bars as a symbol of their, their own kind of grievances. Um, you know, that's the silent majority. That's, that's Trumpism. You, you quote Barry Goldwater telling a reporter in 1963, sometimes I think this country would be better off if we could just saw off the eastern seaboard and let it float out to sea. Uh, Explain that, how like the East Coast became the representation of a nation apart for this southernization of conservative politics. Sure. I mean, I think that's got roots in two things. One is the New Deal, where you've got this massive concentration of power and resources and money um, in the East, in in Washington. And then similarly, television, starting in, in the 50s, really starts spreading this kind of homogenous view of America across the whole country, and it's largely an East Coast view, um, and people start to really, really resent it. I love that Goldwater quote. Um, uh, LBJ actually made a made a television commercial about it in 1964 that showed somebody actually sawing off a block of wood <laughs> the East Coast, and it, it kind of falls into the bathtub. Um, but yeah, un- underlying all of this is is deep regional resentments um, that go back, you know, to the Civil War. Um, for a while after the war, you know, disunion, as as we're talking about, is something to be kind of ashamed of. You you wouldn't really want to be associated with it. The Civil War is a massive national trauma. Um, people don't want to relive it. 750,000 people dead. And so they kind of sublimate the intrigue that they formerly had, both North and South, for the idea of maybe this union's not really working for us. Maybe the United States uh, is broken. But by the time Nixon becomes president, he and his advisors are, are openly scheming, well, let's go for this part of the country and not that other part. We don't even care about the other part. We don't even want them. You know, disunion kind of becomes the the modus operandi, I, I think, of modern conservative politics. What's the point of all this? Why 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 do we need to to know all of this to understand this political moment? What what is it about it that you were like, this is this really applies to now, and I gotta I gotta tell people about this history. I think it's because these divisions, these 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 tendencies, these struggles have never really been resolved. There's never really been a moment where Americans have kind of sat down and been like, "Huh, do we want to be one country?" You know, um, what is the point of all this? Who who is it serving? What are the costs and benefits of of staying together and splitting apart? Uh, you know, I'm showing from the very very beginning. You know, from the revolution, nobody really wanted to talk about that at all. The union was created not as an end in itself. 
we must create this nation because we have so much in common and we really want to be together. It was a means to an end. It was the only way that they could stand up to Great Britain and, and survive and win independence. And then after the war, there's almost immediately, you know, a civil war, basically, because the states aren't really sure that they want to have anything to do with one another. That's, that's only the beginning. But then continuing on, you know, the civil war surprised Whitman that, you know, Walt Whitman, it surprised him that Northerners actually did want to fight to keep the country together because they'd been talking so much over the last decade and more about, well, we're not really sure this is the country for us anymore. Um, and it really surprised him. Um, and I think that the the reason why people did kind of want to fight to keep the union together was because they thought that it represented something. It represented some kind of important thing for like all of, of humankind, basically. Um, democracy, self-government, it had great promise. Um, and I, I'm just not sure that people really feel that way about the country today. I think what one thing that's really interesting about this moment is that both sides are having pretty serious doubts about the worth of the national enterprise and whether it's worthwhile, you know, to continue it. Um, and it's just it's not going to go away. I think that it's it's in secession because of American history because it was founded in the act of secession from the British Empire because the the other major pivot moments in our history was a, a civil war following a secessionist movement. It's always going to be there as a kind of available remedy, or at least a theoretical one, for anybody who's really, you know, depressed <laughs> with the way things are going. Um, and I just think it's worth looking at this history and talking forthrightly and honestly, um, not reflexively or dismissively, about what the union is, what it, what it is worth, and, and what we're willing to give up in order to see it continue. What do you think? Is, is it worth it still? I go back and forth every single day. <laughs> um, I, I do. You know, I think it's worth one last shot. I write in the book, you know, we must finish the work of reconstruction or give up on the union entirely. I think those are our choices. Finally uniting as one people without exceptions, um, which has never been done in our history. Or, you know, I do, I do think that maybe we'd be better off apart. So, you know, I think it needs to be not an option of first resort, but um, you know, it needs to be an option that's on the table. What if Trump steals the election in 2024? We're all just going to watch, you know? Uh, I think that this is why I think people need to know this history. You know, kind of the one tagline that I've kind of had with this book is like, we fought a civil war to keep the country from breaking apart in the 1860s. It might be that going forward, we need to break apart in order to avoid a civil war. Richard, thank you for the book, and thank you for this time. Thank you, Kai. really appreciate it. Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. You can follow us wherever you get your podcasts, and you can also follow us on both Instagram and Twitter at Notes with Kai. Mixing and music by Jared Paul. Production, reporting, and editing by Karen Froman, Vanessa Handy, Regina Dehir, Rahima Nasa, Kusha Navadar, and Lindsay Foster Thomas. And I'm Kai Wright. And since Thanksgiving has just passed, let me truly say thank you, thank you, thank you to each and every one of you. We are so pleased and honored that you spend time with us each week. Talk to you soon. 